Well, it's our great joy this morning to welcome into our midst and into this pulpit Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Uh, I know him because he is my uh, major professor in my Ph.D. program and has become not only a a professor and a mentor but a friend in the Lord as we fellowshiped uh, not only over research projects but just over the Lord and the Lord's work in our life. Dr. Kostenberger uh, comes to us with much distinction. He has served since 1996 at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary as professor of New Testament and biblical studies, and most recently as senior research professor in that category. Uh, He is giving his latter years now to many writing projects, uh, most uh, notably notably maybe the Cradle Cross and the Crown, a a, a New Testament uh, survey book. It's uh, well known to a lot of us. His book on the uh, uh, biblical hermeneutics is well loved. There are a number of titles. I brought uh, some of them up here so that I could highlight for you that we have out on the table outside. If you would like to uh, maybe read some of his work, one of the newest ones, The First Days of Jesus, is a book dealing with the Incarnation, which as we move into the Christmas season would be a wonderful uh, reflection uh, for you as we uh, think about the coming of our Lord and Savior. Truth matters, uh, confident faith in a confusing world that he's uh, put together to help us navigate those uh, waters and culture. Salvation to the Ends of the Earth, a book he wrote a number of years ago on biblical missions. If you want to establish a sound uh, theology and biblical philosophy of missions, uh, no better book to get your hands on. Probably, I don't know, maybe your best-selling title, God, Marriage, and Family, uh, a ministry that has cropped out of this uh, called uh, Foundations, is it Family Foundations or something like that, uh, that he speaks all over the country on the issue of reestablishing a biblical paradigm for the family. Uh, a couple of others, uh, there's uh, which Bible translation should I use? If you're trying to sort through that issue in your personal reading and uh, Bible time, that's a great help for you. Truth and a culture of doubt, uh, the heresy of orthodoxy, how contemporary culture's fascination with diversity has reshaped our understanding of early Christianity. Now, I don't have time to highlight all the titles, but those are a couple that are available just to let you know that uh, we are blessed this morning to have a man who has uh, contributed much to evangelical scholarship. He's contributed much to the church. His love and heart, while in the institution of uh, academic learning, is also in the church. He loves to serve the church. He loves to be with pastors and with God's people. One of the things I most appreciate about uh, Dr. Kostenberger is that he matches an excellence in scholarship with an excellence in devotion to the Lord. In my experience, that is not always the case in uh, scholarly and academic circles. It's very refreshing to be around. In fact, if uh, one more book I could mention is his title, Just Simply Excellence, when he, which he wrote as a call to other scholars and others who are engaged in academic study to do their study as an act of devotion and an act of glory to God. Uh, excellent book, even if you're not a scholar, to pick up and just understand God's calling on your, whatever your vocation is to that. Um, he is uh, this in, in, in town this week for the Evangelical Theological Society, so we're grateful that he made a little time for us uh, this morning to be able to come and speak to us on the issue of God's roles for men and women. So Dr. Kostenberg, if you'd come. Our topic this morning, God's Design for Man and Woman, 
is a topic that I'm uh, very passionate about, that I've devoted much study to. Uh, my wife and I both, for at least the last 15 or 20 years, uh, just because it is such an important topic that's so central to who we are uh, as God's people. Uh, my wife sends greetings. Uh, she's going to join me later in the week. Uh, she's just a wonderful partner. We have uh, four children. Uh, uh, one graduated from college, and then two are currently in college, and then we have a, a 13-year-old um, so just finishing a basketball tournament uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina. We live in, uh, in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Um, so uh, parenting is, is a full-time uh, job for us right now, and uh, uh, we are united to, to try to help our children navigate some of the, the waters of the culture um, and uh, have uh, homeschooled um, all four of our children with a few exceptions here and there um, and uh, just uh, love them dearly and, and uh, are uh, very committed to the biblical teaching on uh, God's design for man and woman. Now, uh, until fairly recently, it would probably have been unnecessary to spend a lot of time on the topic as uh, basic uh, as this. Uh, marriage is between a man and a woman uh, for a life, right? And God made humanity male and female, uh, correct? Every child knows that, whether he's a, a boy or she's a girl, uh, but Sadly, as you know, things are not quite as simple uh, anymore. You know, you're at a cultural tipping point when multiple news magazines run cover stories on the same subject. A little while ago, Time and Newsweek and uh, some other magazines ran stories on transgender, which they declared to be the next phase of the gay rights revolution. Transgender uh, describes those whose perception of their gender identity doesn't match their biological sex. Until recently, transgender was viewed as a disorder, but just last year, the American Psychiatric Association removed the condition from its list, just like it had removed homosexuality a few decades ago. Now, does this seem strange uh, to you? Well, maybe so, but be aware that transgender is coming to a school system near you, or maybe it's already there. In fact, schools across the country are beginning to allow boys to identify as transgender to use girls' bathrooms and locker rooms. Medical professionals recommend sex change surgery for transgender persons, and some parents are even pursuing surgery for children who experience conflict between their gender and physical identities. Just a year ago or so, uh, Medicare lifted its ban on sex reassignment uh, surgeries. But severing gender identity from biological sex has implications far beyond some people identifying themselves as transgender. In this cultural climate, it's no longer appropriate to raise boys to be boys and girls to be girls. Instead, we're told to treat gender norms as fluid. In such an environment, teaching fixed and distinct 
gender roles, as I'm advocating today, uh, is often equated with an oppressive philosophy that has no longer any place in this brave new world of transgender fluidity. I'm thinking of my son who's a freshman at NC State right now, and you should see some of the surveys where he's asked with regard to gender identity. I think there's six or eight different categories, and, uh, you know, uh, I remember almost humorous, right? He texted me as he was filling in that survey, uh, and he said, Dad, I'm male, right? You know, because that was kind of the first among... I mean, it can get pretty confusing, even for somebody who, you know, was raised in a, in a, in a Christian home. Now, uh, feminists have worked toward that end for years. My wife uh, wrote a book uh, about this, uh, Jesus and the Feminists, where she covered a book called Omnigender, a trans-religious approach that was published uh, as early as 2001 by a woman named Virginia Ramey Mullencott. I don't mean to sound alarmist, but Christians are going to have to meet not only the same-sex challenge, but also the transgender challenge as the culture is moving fast. We must be clear about what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a man or a woman according to God's design and be faithful to live out that message in a culture that is increasingly out of step with biblical teaching. In fact, just last year, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution on transgender identity that you can access on the internet if if you're interested. Uh, What has this world come to? It's more evident by the year that the world apart from Christ stands in rebellion against God's plan, short of a major revival, uh, living out God's blueprint for marriage and the family, uh, and for what it means to be a man or a woman will be increasingly countercultural. And yet, when we look at the Bible, uh, it's striking to find that this kind of gender rebellion against the Creator is nothing new. Just look at, at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. In fact, our contemporary culture closely resembles the conditions of the immoral and corrupt Roman Empire in the first century. Now, if we just stop there things could be really depressing. And in fact, a world where God is dishonored can be really depressing, a really depressing world to live in, especially when it comes to human sexuality and male-female identity and relationships. But fortunately, God has not left us without guidance with regard to how we are to live out our manhood and womanhood in this world. He's given us his word, and the Bible contains clear and ample guidance on what it means to be a man or a woman according to God's design. Uh, My wife and I have taught uh, biblical manhood and womanhood for many years in various settings, most recently in a course available at BibleMesh.com. And what we found is that when we share with our students the consistent pattern of biblical manhood and womanhood throughout Scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we regularly find that, that our students uh, respond well and find that teaching uh, very compelling. They realize we're not dealing here with a few isolated passages uh, or proof texts that can be interpreted in a number of different ways, uh, but with a consistent and coherent storyline that makes sense and that deeply resonates with their own experience. Uh, In fact, my wife and I believe that anyone who cares to search the scriptures in their entirety 
will discover a biblical theology of manhood and womanhood that reveals God's design for man and woman as a pattern that is wise, beautiful, uh, good, and true. And those who try to live by this pattern will experience God's blessing, while those who rebel against God's word will sadly have to pay the negative consequences for their rebellion against God's plan for man and woman. We ought to be God's witnesses in the world to his gospel, yes, but including also his plan for man and woman. Uh, that may be through word, that may be just through the way uh, we live out our marriages and our families at, as husbands and wives and as, as uh, fathers, mothers, children. Now, what is this grand divine design then? I, I don't have time this morning to go through all of Scripture in great detail, though my wife and I have written a book, uh, God's Design for Man and Woman, in which we do just that. Um, this morning, I'll have to be content to give you an overview of some of the highlights of the biblical teaching on manhood and womanhood. So this is not going to be your expository message where I'm just going to exposit one shorter uh, passage of Scripture. I'm going to take a broad, synthetic overview of Scripture and looking at some of the highlights. And there's, uh, I'm, I'm going to follow the, the basic storyline, the broad storyline of Scripture, uh, creation, uh, the fall, redemption, and then new creation, or the consummation of God's plan. And as we look at these four phases in salvation history, we'll see that God's design for man and woman is revealed at creation, that it is corrupted at the fall, that redemption in Christ aims to restore God's original design, and that the new creation will witness the final consummation of God's design in that we will be forever united both individually and corporately with Christ. So revealed, corrupted, restored, and consummated. It's my hope that you will not only agree with uh, this presentation, not because it's me saying it, but because it is uh, a, uh, an accurate interpretation of, of Scripture, but that you also be equipped to share God's plan for man and woman with others as parents with your children and as witnesses to God's plan, uh, both in the church and in the community. So... Uh, Let's look at creation first, and let's pick up the story in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, which reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. And moving to verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So uh, I'm not trying to tell you anything new that you don't already know. I'm not trying to be original or novel here, but I'm trying to be faithful to Scripture. And so what we see here is that God made humanity male and female, not transgender or, or in any other way, that he created them to be fruitful and multiply, something same-sex couples can never do, and that he made the man and the woman in his image, that is, in his family likeness, and that God put them jointly in charge of this earth to take care of it for him. So Genesis 1 talks about God's creation of humanity in general, and then in Genesis 2, we get a sort of close-up view, a zoom lens 
of God's creation of the man and the woman individually. Let's take a quick look at the creation account, uh, starting with uh, verse 7. Uh, it says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Then forwarding to verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we see that first God creates the man from the ground, and then the woman both from the man and for the man, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians eleven eight and 9. Notice uh, there's a word play in the original Hebrew because the word for a man is Adam, you know, transliterated Adam, uh, and the word for ground is Adama. So Adam literally means something like earthling. Uh, notice also that there's a second important uh, verbal link in that the Hebrew word for woman is Isha, which is a derivative of the word for man, which is Ish. So woman means something like the female version of humanity. It's kind of hard to, to completely uh, render that accurately. So we see that God's design for man and woman at creation is reflected in the very words for man and woman in the original language of Scripture. Uh, in, in fact, it's kind of similar to the English language where man and woman are related, uh, as are male and female. We also notice that the woman is identified as the man's helper fit for him or suitable helper as uh, other uh, versions translated. Again, in the, in the Hebrew, the phrase is etzer konegdo. So konegdo means literally uh, opposite or corresponding to him. That is, the woman is the man's human counterpart uh, who is complementing him as his congenial partner, uh, by the way, I had to skip for time's sake that brief section where God says, I'm going to make the woman, but then he doesn't actually make the woman, right? There's a couple verses where he parades the animals, almost a bit comical there, uh, in front of the man, and he names them, and it's some sort of a realization that none of those are compatible, none of those are corresponding to him. So God has to make the woman from his rib as his, his partner who is uh, congenial to him. Uh, and the word helper, uh, etzer, is a very dignified expression that's used even for God multiple times in the Psalms where the psalmist says, you know, God is my etzer, right? God is my uh, helper. So clearly the woman's role with relation to the man is very dignified. It's one of strong support and companionship and partnership. And at the same time, we see that God made the man to be the leader who has primary responsibility for the marriage relationship and his family. 
my wife and I often summarize God's design for a man and woman this way. Male leadership, female partnership. We also see that in God's plan, biological sex and gender identity are one and the same. And male-female distinctions are fixed, not fluid. We also see how in marriage, two people become one flesh, one family. So God's, in God's original plan, there's unity, there's harmony, and there's intimacy. Something that now the world often lacks in their relationships because of the corruption, as we'll see, that happened at the fall. But something that as believers, we can increasingly experience again because of the redemption uh, that there is in Christ. Now, before we move on, let me talk to you who are single for just a moment. Um, I teach a life class at Providence Baptist Church where we worship, and uh, we have a very healthy uh, you know, group uh, made up of, of people in all kinds of walks in life, including people who are married, people who are single. And so I think it's really important and understand I didn't get married till a little bit later in life. I've been... Uh, you know, my early 30s, and so uh, I definitely have a heart for, for people who are, you know, single or currently unmarried because uh, I know it's uh, uh, sometimes hard to, 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 to feel you're completely a part of, 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 of the fellowship of the church. Uh, I, I do believe that God's original design was for people to be married, as we see in Genesis uh, 1 and 2. Uh, as, you, as you read through the scriptures, just kind of a quick overview, and in God, Marriage, and Family, we have a whole chapter on that, if you're interested, just to learn more about the theo- biblical theology of singleness. So in Old Testament times, there were very few people who were permanently single, though there were, of course, people, widows in particular, who lost their spouse. But, but then in the New Testament, we see a new development in that both Jesus and Paul speak of a gift of celibacy for the sake of, of God's kingdom. Uh, the, the Greek word there is charisma, which is the same word as the one that's used for other uh, spiritual gifts. So this means that some may be called to remain unmarried so they can devote themselves uh, more fully to kingdom work without the kinds of distractions uh, that come w- when you're married and, and have a family. Uh, that said, I believe marriage is still the general pattern right now. Of course, we have uh, Ephesians 5 where Paul spends a great deal on um, uh, extolling the virtues of marriage. And you have 1 Corinthians 7 uh, where Paul tries very hard, like I'm doing right now, to, 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 to navigate the, the tension to balance right the, uh, the, the calling to marriage with uh, the, the call to singleness. So, uh, uh, of course, as we'll see later, there won't be marriage in heaven. Uh, according to Jesus, we'll come back to that at the very end. Uh, but I would say, if you're single, much of what I'm saying uh, right now and what I'm going to say in the next few minutes still applies to you because it's not limited just to married people. It relates to our identity as as men and women in general, whether we're single or married. And uh, who knows, you may well be married someday, maybe even soon. Uh, just yesterday, Nancy Lee Moss, uh, who'd been single for many years, wrote quite a, a bit on the topic of singleness, uh, just got married. Uh, there are Late 50s, she's now Mrs. Wolgamuth. Uh, Speaking for myself, I certainly want our two girls and two boys to know God's design for man and woman 
right now and to get ready for their future uh, spouse if God leads them into marriage. So even if you're uh, 10 or 13 right now, you know, you want to listen very attentively. Uh, But let's get back to the story. Uh, The second movement then, uh, less pleasant than the first, uh, but one that we're in some ways more familiar with because to some extent that's still part of where we live is, is the fall. Uh, the Bible tells us that the man's and the woman's marital bliss, uninterrupted by sin, didn't last very long. One day, uh, you know the story, the tempter, uh, Satan, approached the woman and lured her into sin. Uh, let's take a quick look at uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to skip a few verses here or there, but uh, starting with verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then, as you know, a conversation ensues between uh, Satan and the woman. Then uh, verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So he's flatly contradicting uh, God's word. Uh, That ought to have been a clue for the woman. Uh, uh, for God knows, verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be, uh, will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Of course, that was Satan's downfall, right? He was not satisfied with being the highest of God's angels. Uh, he wanted to be uh, like God himself, and now he's uh, misery loves company. He's trying to drag uh, humanity right, uh, you know, down with him. So verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the fall occurred. Uh, both the woman and the man sinned. And then they hide from God, but God holds them accountable. Uh, Verse 11, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. It's kind of like I practically had no choice. Right? Talk about abdicating your responsibility. And the man has the kutzpah of not only blaming the woman, but if he picked it up, he's even implicitly blaming God who gave the woman to him. Well, God should have given him a better helper, right? So it's practically all God's fault. So uh, the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate, you know, just like the man. And I ate. Practically had no choice. Well, you did have a choice. (laughs) Whatever happened to accepting responsibility for your actions? So uh, in the rest of the the chapter, God tells them the, the consequences for their sin. There's always consequences for sin, right? Let's not be deceived in thinking we can sin with impunity. Um... Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And I take that in context to mean a desire to control. There's a parallel in, I think, Genesis 4, 7, um, where uh, God tells Cain that sin desires you, desires to control you, but you must master it. And so your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the fall affects the woman primarily 
in relation to her husband and uh, her children. And in verse 17, don't think I have it on the overhead, but if you have your Bibles uh, in front of you, and, and he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. Uh, you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow, verse 18. So the fall affects the man, it appears primarily uh, in his work. After the fall, as we see in this uh, in, in the fall narrative in Genesis 3 then, it's, it's every man and you know, woman for himself. Everyone is blaming somebody else. As we've seen, the man blames the woman and even God. The woman blames the serpent. Uh, and there's plenty of blame to go around. The woman probably, you know, we don't have time to psychoanalyze or even to, to read between the lines, you know, too much. But the, we recently studied, uh, I did a eight-week study of, of God's design for man and woman this past summer at our life class. And so we had a whole segment there just on this. And we had some fascinating uh, analysis of, you know, what went wrong and how could the fall have been uh, avoided. And so one of the things that came out of that was that the woman probably shouldn't have engaged in lengthy conversation with the devil. What do you think? <laughs> or at least she should have at any point in the process checked with her husband. And... Uh, with the husband, you know, you really don't know. He was either not around, or if he was, did nothing to stop her. In the narrative, he's not mentioned until after the fall already occurred, right? Uh, what we do know is that the, the woman acted as the leader, and that the man followed her somewhat sheepishly uh, into sin. And the devil, of course, uh, subverted the male-female relationship, God's original design, and, and both the, the woman and the man took the bait. No longer was the man the leader, as I mentioned, and the woman served as his loving and intelligent and corresponding counterpart. Uh, the woman was now the leader, and the man had become her follower. Notice what it says, we read it a minute ago in verse 17, and he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree, about which I commanded you do not eat from it. In other words, God chastises the man for failing to exercise his proper leadership role. This, of course, is diametrically opposite God's design, where the man is the leader and the woman his responsive, loving partner. And the results were disastrous. God's image and humanity was distorted. The male-female relationship, which, as we've seen, was one of harmony and unity and intimacy, now became this constant struggle for control. I, I think all of us who are married uh, have some degree of appreciation for the fact that you often do have this, this uh, sinful struggle for control, and often pride and stubbornness get in the way of, of that intimacy that God intended for us to enjoy in marriage. As we read the rest of the Old Testament... Um, we soon see that negative consequences ensue, uh, such as polygamy, men marrying multiple wives. Also, many marriages are no longer lifelong, but end in divorce. Uh, or the marriage bond is, is broken by adultery. And certainly all men and women eventually die. Those are all consequences of, of the fall. But still, God's original design continues. Political and religious leaders in Old Testament times were virtually all men. Uh, national deliverers such as, as Moses or, or Joshua, the kings of Israel, and the Levite priests. 
things were a little bit different with regard to prophets because uh, prophets didn't command institutional authority, but they spoke directly for God and called people back to obedience to his word and his covenants. Uh, And throughout the Old Testament, people were looking forward to a redeemer who would save them from their sins. So I believe it fits with the pattern of male leadership that the Messiah, too, was male, even though, of course, he came to save uh, both men and women, all people. At the same time, we see many inspiring female characters in the Old Testament that I can here only mention uh, in brief. Wives such as Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Prophetesses such as Deborah, Miriam, and uh, Huldah. Other godly women such as Abigail, Ruth, Esther, and many other significant women like Hannah, the the mother of uh, the prophet Samuel, who uh, became a precursor, uh, Hannah that is, of none other than Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. My my wife and I spent quite a bit of time studying many of these women in Scripture, and, and what we found is that usually their significance comes from the way in which they're related to the Messianic line in God's purposes in salvation history. Uh, For example, Ruth was David's grandmother. Esther was used by God to save Israel from this uh, extinction, uh, which would also have meant the end of of the Messianic promise. And Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel were mothers of patriarchs and so forth. And I believe the same is still true for us today, men and women. Our lives count as we're sent related to what God is doing in the world and as we together are on mission for God. So uh, we've seen God's design of creation and we've witnessed the consequences of the corruption that took place at the fall on the, on the male-female relationship. Uh, let's move on to a more pleasant subject now, uh, redemption. How does redemption in Christ affect marriage and the family? How does the, the cross impact God's design for man and woman. Again, we could spend a lot of time on it, but, but kind of in, in, in a nutshell, the answer is that redemption in Christ restores, at least potentially, male-female harmony and unity and intimacy, but it doesn't reverse or erase the original pattern of male headship. And that's been a bone of contention, so I'm going to develop that a little bit more. Let me reiterate my short answer so I can elaborate a bit. Redemption in Christ restores male-female harmony and unity and intimacy, but it it doesn't reverse or erase God's original design for man and woman that we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2. As I mentioned, some argue that redemption in Christ actually did do away with male leadership in marriage. Uh, Many of those cite Galatians 3.28, where it says, in Christ, there's no male um, and female. Those um, so-called egalitarians or uh, evangelical feminists believe that male leadership is merely a result of the fall, but that God's original design uh, was egalitarian. According to them, in Christ, male-female relationships are restored to their original egalitarian design. question is, are they right? Um, I don't think so, and for the sake of time, I'm going to just give you three reasons uh, why I think that view is mistaken. The first problem is that their view conflicts 
with the Old Testament teaching that we've already seen in Genesis 2 and 3. As we've seen in Genesis 2 and 3, it's clear that God made the man first and assigned to him a leadership role, and that he then made the woman to come alongside the man as his corresponding partner. In other words, male leadership is not merely a result of the fall. It's part of God's original design at creation. Uh, Secondly, evangelical feminism conflicts with the teaching and practice of Jesus. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus appointed 12 men to be his apostles, uh, his core leadership group for what would become the New Testament church. Egalitarians try to counter this by uh, a variety of ways. Uh, Most notably, they would say that Jesus simply chose 12 men because his contemporaries weren't quite ready for women leaders. Uh, But I would respond that Jesus frequently broke social custom, such as he, when he mingled with tax collectors and sinners or when he talked publicly with the Samaritan woman. I just had a chance to preach in, in chapel at Wachita on John 3 and 4, and I spent quite a bit of time showing how Jesus broke just about every social convention uh, by engaging in lengthy public conversation with the Samaritan woman. So uh, that argument doesn't seem to uh, really hold. Uh, I think it's unlikely Jesus would have compromised his convictions uh, on such an important matter and accommodating himself to the culture if an important principle had been at stake. I think even the number 12 establishes a a conscious connection, I think deliberate on Jesus' part, between the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, which, of course, uh, also show that pattern of male leadership. And then in the book of Revelation, the last book of our canon, you see how the 24 elders, you know, kind of the, the, the 12 uh, tribes and the 12 apostles are shown to, to, to be unified and to represent the uh, church in its, of the ages in its entirety. Third problem is the idea that the, the male, that male authority simply a result of the fall uh, also runs into problems when you consider the practice and teaching of the apostle Paul. Like Jesus, uh, Paul gathered around him a group of men who led the early church's mission, the so-called Pauline Circle, made up of men like Timothy and Titus and Luke and Barnabas and Silas, and, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, Also, in the letters to Timothy and Titus, he stipulated that church leaders be faithful husbands, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 2, Titus 1, 6, and so forth, which implies that they were to be men. On the other hand, he, he said in, in 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, uh, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but uh, the woman was deceived. Of course, if we had time, there'd be a lot to talk about in this passage because scholars debate virtually every phrase uh, in First uh, Timothy two twelve through fourteen, as a matter of fact, uh, Tom Schreiner, colleague, good friend of mine, and I have co-edited a book, Women in the Church, where we do just that, and uh, we just uh, are about to release the third edition in in February. And so, uh, believe me, we've looked at every uh, you know nook and cranny of of that passage in in depth, and uh, it it. it uh, what, what intrigues us, though, is that when you think about it, Paul was actually quite clear when he said, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I think maybe the reason why some people have a problem understanding what this passage means is not because it's not clear, 
but because it goes against what they believe should be the role of men and women in the church, perhaps they've been more influenced by the culture uh, than by the biblical teaching. And remember, this is not an isolated passage. You know, as we have seen in our study so far, there's this consistent, coherent pattern that spans all the way from creation, you know, to new creation. And then the same that Paul teaches for the church is also true in the home. He taught that married women should be submissive to their husbands, while husbands should love their wives as Christ uh, loves the church. So you tell me who has the harder uh, task there. Uh, for time's sake, I'll, I'll just quote the shorter passage, Colossians three eighteen through 19. Though, as you know, Paul gives a more uh, detailed uh, set of instructions in the parallel in Ephesians 5. Uh, 21 to 23. So in Colossians, uh, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as it's fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So we see that one and the same pattern, which is male leadership and female partnership, applies both to the natural household, uh, the family, uh, marriage, and to God's spiritual household, to the church, just as you would expect. There's, again, coherence. There's consistency. All of this is to say that redemption in Christ, remember my original starting point, does not mean returning to this alleged egalitarian pre-fall relationship. Rather, redemption in Christ brings about a restoration of God's original design, where the man is the loving leader and the woman is his devoted partner. But in Christ, redeemed in Christ, the two are once again united in serving God together and also in raising children who love and serve God as well. Finally, I'm going to say a brief word about uh, the consummation of God's design for man and woman in the new creation. Um, I once was asked to teach uh, in a class on Ephesians 5, and so I sat down and in an effort to try to understand the passage in its context in the letter, read through the entire book of Ephesians, and it truly transformed my understanding of that passage. Uh, and uh, so I love what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, which I think really is the key verse for the whole book, uh, where uh, Paul says, speaking of God, that uh, he was making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to bring all things, that's the original NIV translation here, to bring all things back together under his headship or authority, things in heaven and things on earth. So in Christ... Right? God's plan of the ages is to bring all things back together under Christ's authority. So Christ's death on the cross isn't the end. It's just the beginning uh, as we move toward the new creation. All of creation is moving toward that final state where Christ will rule over all humanity, male and female. And I would just point out that contrary to much of feminist thinking, authority is not bad in and of itself. What's bad is the corruption and the abuse of authority, whether by men or women. Um, authority itself is good and necessary if exercised in keeping with God's purposes. And so then later in Ephesians, we see that this bringing of all things back together under one head, Jesus Christ, also encompasses the male-female relationship, uh, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. 
So one interesting observation there is that, you know, sorry, James Dobson, you know, uh, focus on the family, that I think according to Scripture, marriage is not supposed to be the ultimate focus. It is a means of glorifying God. Uh, So the ultimate focal point is to be Christ. So while marriage is very important, our focus should not be on marriage in and of itself. Somebody could have a decent marriage, maybe a good marriage, right? But care less about the glory of God. I don't think that's the biblical, uh, fully the biblical understanding of marriage the way Paul sets it forth in Ephesians uh, 5 in context. So focus should not be just on marriage in and of itself, but on following Christ in discipleship. And then on serving Christ together as men and women committed to his lordship and supreme authority. And that's why my wife and I believe in the importance of allowing our children as well to enter into our ministry and to serve alongside of us as much as possible so we can serve collectively uh, as a family and as part of, of, of the larger church community. So as we serve him and as we submit to him, we'll honor him and bring glory to him and we'll be blessed. Now, also, as we mentioned already, uh, Jesus said, I um, wish we had elaborated a little bit more on this, that there will be no more marriage in heaven, Matthew twenty-two thirty, but we'll all be jointly related to Christ as his bride. Uh, I tend to think that we will still, you know, know each other in heaven, we'll, we'll uh, just, there's going to be something even greater and more perfect and fulfilling as we, as we experience uh, this uh, unbroken communion with God and Christ. Revelation 19 uses the marriage supper of a lamb as a, as a symbolic way of depicting the, the consummation of the union between Christ and the church as his bride. Uh, so let me say a few words in conclusion. And we've seen that, that God at creation designed the male-female relationship with the man as the loving leader and the woman as his responsive partner. Uh, everything was perfect in the garden. Neither the man nor the woman would have taken any issue with the way God set things up. Uh, but we saw that at the fall, uh, the roles were reversed, with the woman acting as the leader uh, independently of her husband, and the man following her into sin. So she was supposed to be a helper, right? But she really didn't help the man very much at the fall. Uh, neither did he exercise his proper role of leadership. Uh, the result was this struggle for control between the man and the woman, something that is still with us to some extent, uh, some of us to a large extent, because even as Christians, we still have a sinful nature. Uh, But we also saw that God's plan in Christ is to bring all things, including the marriage relationship, back together under his headship and authority. So that means that as we're filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, and by the way, uh, in the original, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, that's the head command. And it's one long sentence, sometimes, you know, not supposed to do this, children, but, but Paul had this, length, this habit, right, of stringing together a bunch of participles. And so they continue all the way through. So verse 21 and 22, they're still subsumed in the original under be filled with the Spirit. And so the important lesson there is that wives can only really joyfully and gladly submit to their Husbands, as they're filled with the Spirit, and likewise, men can only sacrificially love their wives 
right, in a Christ-like manner, as they're filled with the Spirit. This is really written to Spirit-filled disciples of Christ. Um, so as we're filled with the Spirit, and also as we put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. You know, it, it wasn't until fairly recently that it struck me that this passage on spiritual warfare that I'd almost read, always read in, in, in isolation from the immediately preceding passage, Ephesians 5 on marriage, that there may be a connection between the two, right? So that when God says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that relates to my spouse as well, and that he relates, you know, between parents and children uh, also. The idea that as husbands and as wives, we ought to put on that full armor. So as we are filled with the Spirit, and as we put on the full armor of God, we can once again live out our relationship the way God intended in the first place, in harmony and unity, rather than trying to man- manipulate and control the other person and, and uh, using him or her to meet our own needs. Now, in this life, we'll be able to experience God's ideal only imperfectly. But one day, when history is consummated, we'll spend eternity with him and with one another in perfect harmony. I'm sure we're all uh, you know, greatly looking forward to that day. So let me close with a challenge. Uh, because trusting in God's word means not only believing something in our head, but acting on it. So my challenge is let's do what God's Word says and also let's talk about it. I sometimes find in, in, in some settings people are kind of afraid to talk about this because they're afraid it could be a divisive or controversial issue. Um, but it's too important an issue to be silent on and we, we're seeing the general culture. Uh, I've met too many Christians who claim to be submitted to God's Word and they may have been in, in other areas, and to Christ's lordship. But when it came to God's design for man and woman, they chose to do just about whatever they wanted. Now, they may not have told you that, but when you looked at their lives, uh, there seemed to be a, a, a kind of a disparity between uh, the biblical teaching, the way I just outlined it, and, and their lifestyle and their, their decisions they made. Uh, they did, in some cases, whatever seemed convenient or expedient, or whatever they felt like. It's almost like hands off God. When it comes to those matters, I'm going to do my own thing. Um, and I'm here to tell you that's unacceptable. Um, I, I started out my message by telling you about disturbing trends in the general culture. We saw how it's always good to be vigilant and discerning and to realize what's behind many of the cultural trends in our day, which I believe is a rebellion against God's wonderful and wise and beautiful design for man and woman. We also saw that most of the trends we're witnessing today are really not new because in many ways we see the same types of things already in the first century when the New Testament was written. People are still sinners in need of salvation, and nothing has really fundamentally changed in the human condition. So for this reason, the Bible is profoundly relevant in our day, just like it was in Paul's. But let's be careful, I believe, while we should be alert, though not alarmed or thrown off track, our primary motivation for living out God's design for man and woman should not be, I believe, in opposition to the alarming trends in the general culture. Instead, we should challenge men to be leaders and women to be intelligent partners in caring for God's creation because we love God, we love God's Word, and because we want to glorify him. 
Brothers and sisters, you and I won't be able to save the general culture, I'm afraid, from sinking deeper and deeper into the moral morass it's already in. So, so I often tell my, my, my sons when they play basketball, let's focus on what we actually can control. Let's tell people the gospel of forgiveness and salvation in Christ, and let's remember that one important way in which we can flesh out that gospel is by the way in which we live out Live it out in our marriages and families. So may God bless you and your family as you serve him and as you live out the gospel for his glory. Let's pray together. Great God, we, we worship you today and we worship you not just in song but also uh, worship you by reflecting on the truth and the, the beauty of, of your word I just praise you that, that your word is clear, that it is consistent, that you're not conflicted or divided in any way, and that, that the original design can really not be improved upon, that it still stands. And I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, that, that he uh, came to save us from our sins. And, and he also, as men and women, came to save us from uh, the effects of the fall on our relationships with one another. So thank you that as we're filled with your spirit and as we put on the fuller armor of God, we are able to experience this uh, restored uh, design in all its beauty and, 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 and glory. And Lord, uh, my heart is, and, and the heart is that, that as we follow the biblical teaching on every subject, including on what it means to be a man and a woman according to your design, that uh, that would be a witness to the world around us, those of us who come from unbelieving homes especially, that, that perhaps our, our parents, our siblings would take note that, that, that our marriages are characterized by, by the kind of unity and harmony that, that is often elusive for, for those who don't know Christ. So, so thank you for uh, just calling us to, to be your witnesses, uh, uh, and uh, we pray that uh, you would uh, bless our witness um, as uh, you are faithful, as you are true to your word and to your promises, and uh, as uh, we look forward to the new creation when we will be forever united with Christ as his bride. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.